As we come now before the very Word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, or feel free to just listen, uh, we'll be in Genesis chapter 5. We'll be in a moment in Genesis 5. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our great God, we know that for you, a thousand years is as a day. You see all and know all, and we cannot even begin to fathom the depths of your knowledge. So, Lord, as we come before your word, we ask that you would be patient with us now. Bear with us, but guide us in truth. By your spirit, would you help us to see and to believe? Teach us to know what you have given us here. And we ask your mercy in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Genesis in chapter 5. If you're looking in your bulletin, you'll notice there's no verses, and that's not a misprint. We're taking the whole thing. I know that's a big bundle, but there's good reason for it. So this is Genesis chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work. 
and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of God. Now, you may have noticed just by the reading, at least by the hearing, that this is different than much of what we've heard so far in Genesis. Most of the book of Genesis up to this point has been narrative. So this recording of all these particular ancient events. So we've heard about God's creation of the heavens and the earth, how God planted a garden in Eden, how, how he blessed Adam and Eve, giving them dominion as rulers who were made in the image of God, and then how they disobeyed God and a curse descended upon them and the land. And this new spread of sin made sin the new ruler of the earth that no one can fully escape from. All of this is setting up a trajectory at the very beginning of the Bible of where it's all going to go, that God, in the course of time, is going to send his son to make it right again. That his son Jesus would be a sacrifice for sin, become sin for us, and that by his death his blood would redeem his people and renew the world so that we can be with God again. That's the overarching narrative of the Bible. This text fits inside of that narrative even though it's not really an exciting narrative text. What we find here in chapter 5 of Genesis is more like a register, like a record book where you just kind of plug in the blanks of the names and the numbers. And in some ways, it is that. You know, the header of the opening of chapter 5 is this, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And what follows is the record, then, of that series of generations. Now, when I think of generations, I tend to think in their horizontal dimension. That is, that's often how we hear generations discussed. That is, we group people into generations by the year that they're born, right? And even, uh, it varies from place to place, but they tend to give generations their own names and then define those generations by stereotypes that are usually, well, pretty negative and oversimplified. So you've heard of this, yes? Like there's the boomer generation, and some say stereotypically the boomers are, are stubborn and they only focus on the good old days. And then after them is Generation X, and they're the forgotten generation who secretly loves that everybody overlooks them because it makes them feel special and independent. And then there's the generation of millennials who are apparently obsessed with avocado toast and lattes. And then after that is a Gen Z who was born with their umbilical cord plugged into an iPhone, and they haven't unplugged it since. That's how it's presented. 
And those, uh, those caricatures of generations are generally not helpful. Not because they're necessarily untrue, but because they're often used to scoff and dismiss generations. Oh, those boomers. Oh, those millennials. That's not what Christians are about. We're about building up, not tearing down and belittling. And that's not the kind of thing that we're looking at in the generations of Genesis anyway. This book of generations in chapter 5 puts a focus not on this horizontal dimension, but on the vertical dimension of the generations. You may have noticed that there's branches in each step, that they spread out, says they had other sons and daughters, but the focus in each generation is narrowed down to one single person. That's the generation. And then, each, uh, then there's a generation afterward, and each generation is stacked on top of the next one, making this very long vertical line over the course of time. Now, there are important things to be gleaned from this line of generations. I want to observe just a few characteristics of these generations and then take a look at the impact this might have on all of us. So the first of the characteristics of these generations is that they are rapid. The generations are rapid. You might have noticed that the people listed here lived, at least compared to us, a really long time. You know, some is, the early ones hit age 930, 912, 905. Methuselah, the oldest of all people mentioned in the Bible, hits 969 years old. Almost a, he almost added another digit in his years. Can you imagine the fireball of a birthday cake that might have been? And I don't know whether 969 sounds good to you or not, but this doesn't just mean that these people have extra years tacked on the end of their life. It seems that they're experiencing the effects of aging slower, that their life is stretched out over a longer period of time because they also have children when they are much older than most of us have children. Adam and Eve have Seth when they are 130 years old. And Noah, the last one mentioned, is fathering kids after he's 500 years old. Imagine playing football uh, with a dad who's 500. Now, what do we do with these numbers? Some say that these numbers are symbolic that they're not actual ages, and I don't think that's fitting to the text at all. Because in order to be symbolic, that symbol has to mean something. It needs to be clear what the symbol is symbolizing. So imagine you pull up on the road to a road sign that's just some square, and it's got text of gibberish that means nothing to you. That doesn't do anything that's useless as a symbol. These are very specific numbers that aren't just symbols here. It seems that these are actual ages. And, and we don't fully know why or how these early people seem to age so long. You know, there's been hypothesis made about it. Maybe there was some natural reason for that. 
Maybe some have said that in the days before the flood, like we are here, that the atmosphere and the air was thicker. The water was still up there instead of partly down here. And that might have impacted the way the sun's rays affect us, the ecosphere, all of I honestly don't know what to make of that. I'm not a scientist. Maybe, maybe there's something to that. The text doesn't tell us. We at least know there is some sort of supernatural component to their ages. Because in the third verse of the next chapter, the Lord puts a limit to man's lifespan. He says, I'm going to make the typical lifespan 120 years, which suggests that the Lord must have done something differently prior. He was somehow sustaining them in a different way in these days. However, I don't know what the deal is with all of this. However, these many long years occurred At least we know this, we do not feel their long length when we read them here. I can easily read a person's entire lifetime, their hundreds of years from birth to death without taking even a breath. All those years pass rapidly In some ways, it reminds me of one of those uh, nature time-lapse videos. You know what I'm talking about? National Geographic does them sometimes, or, you know, they they have a stationary camera that films, and they just speed it up so that you can see everything quickly, and so you can see clouds kind of chasing each other. Or or there's, you know, a sunrise and sunset, and and it kind of goes quicker and quicker and becomes sort of a streak of light and color. Sometimes it moves so fast that you can almost feel the rotation of the Earth, see the movement of the stars, the the shape of the galaxy even seems to melt and morph and twist. There's a sort of loveliness in those sorts of things. Often those time-lapse videos are filmed over the course of a few hours or days, maybe, rarely. Sometimes they're filmed over the course of months and sped up. But now imagine you take a scene like that and hit it into super fast forward. We're going warp speed now because we're condensing centuries into the span of just seconds. If you watched that, you would barely be able to see anything but blur. And that's what we have here. The generations are rapid. That's the first characteristic. The second that we might observe is that the generations are repetitious. They're repetitious. Not only does the text go through these generations quickly, but it also describes these generations in the exact same way. That aside from the names and the numbers, most of the generations are are identical. There's only a few brief times where the description uh, diverges at all from this same sort of redundant pattern. It's slightly different on the ends of the list, so, so Adam has this little extra note about his son Seth being in his image and likeness. Not just that he looked like his dad, Adam, but that he also is in the image of God, just as Adam and Eve were, that this image is going to be passed down to later generations. Adam has that slight divergent to note that. And the guy at the end, 
Lamech includes also this short little speech about why he names his kid Noah. Hey, maybe Noah's going to be the one to bring us relief from this painful toil. Other than the guys on the end, everything else is exactly the same except for one guy right in the middle. Did you notice it as we read? Enoch. The note about Enoch, verse 21, is where he begins. And there's this mysterious comment about how Enoch walked with God and then was not because God took him. What? (laughs) You know, when I read that, I go, wait, what does that even mean? God took him where? You know, he was not how? You know, is Enoch now somehow the only one walking around in some otherworldly space with his earthly body still? You know, the situation with Enoch here brings up so many more questions in my mind, but the text doesn't answer them. It doesn't even pause on them at all. Enoch is this curious little exception that the author doesn't dwell on. He just moves right on to the next generation. And, but the majority of these generations are described on this repeat loop. Do you notice the formula? That's why I wanted us to hear it all. When this guy lived blank number of years, he fathered a son, and then he lived blank more years and had other sons and daughters, and all the days of his life were blank years, and he died. Next. And then it does it again. And that happens nine times, all stacked on one another. Now, that makes me think, maybe it's just some English background, but I think, was all that writing, like, strictly necessary You know, if this were an English essay that I were submitting to my teacher, she might be suspicious that I'm just trying to stretch it out to meet a certain word count. And and you get the little red marks, too wordy, try again. You know? This isn't even establishing key people that are going to be important for the unfolding of the narrative in Genesis or the rest of the Bible. Most of the people in these generations, we never hear any more about them in the rest of the scriptures. It seems the important thing here is is that the narrative is moving from point A to point B. We're trying to get from Adam to Noah. And in the previous chapter, we know that Adam had some previous sons. That line's not going to come now through Abel, because he's murdered. He's dead. The line's not going to come through Cain, because he's the murderer. He's been exiled. He has his own lineage. But now there's this line that comes through another son, Seth. And you imagine, at least I imagine, the the author could have said, Adam fathered Seth, his son, in his own likeness. And all the days of Adam were 930 years, and he died. And then over the course of a bunch more years, Seth had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son who had Noah. Nice and tidy, right? Wouldn't that accomplish the same thing without all this repetition? It would do the same thing, right? Mm, Maybe. Some people think that the Bible ought to be, how do I put this, efficient, that when I come to the scriptures, God's going to give me that snap nugget that I need. 
that the scriptures are to be like a movie. You know, it, it needs to cut to the chase and clip out all the slow and boring parts like this one. But, it, but if we cut it down and tidied all of this up into a nice bow from, from Adam to Noah in just a few words, we would lose something here. All of this repetition seems to suggest that the author means for us to almost feel that redundant monotony of the generations. That the kind of lull, or this pretty uninteresting piece, is actually part of the message. That as we see these generations pass, they pass in a way that is both fast and slow at the same time. The generations are simultaneously rapid and repetitious. That's the second. Here's the final characteristic of the generations, at least that I observe. The generations are terminal. Terminal, that is, they end. And all the generations end pretty abruptly. You know, even Enoch, the guy that doesn't seem to die because he was not and God took him, that's all it says. He was not and God took him next. Aside from Enoch, all the other generations just end with the words, and he died. And then moves on. There's a sort of blunt disruption about that. And he died. There's no pretty euphemism to make it feel better. Oh, he passed away. He was called home. None of that's here. There's no mention of the family's response or any mourning or anything like that. Not that that's inappropriate. It's just not mentioned here. There's not even any flavor to these people's lives. You know, you can imagine they, they were colorful people. Maybe Keenan, for example, was some sort of avid bug collector. You know, that would have gone in his obituary. Or Jared was this, you know, cartographer who was really, really liked to make maps just for the fun of it. Or maybe Lamech made famously yummy pies. Or, or, or Methuselah, I bet, was a brilliant dancer. You know, you got 900 years to, like, perfect the Macarena. What else are you going to do with all that time? Something about it. These people were surely not uninteresting or unimportant people. We know that every person is made uniquely by God, is seen and known by God. And yet that uniqueness is not the point here. Instead, we get this grim reality of life outside the garden that dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And it's set up in this march of generations that each man is born, he lives, and he dies, the end. And he's replaced by children who are born, who live, and die the end, who have children who are born, who live, who die, the end, it repeats, but each cycle is, is terminal. And we know that we could, we could fit any one of us into this generational formula. I have to do a little bit of guesswork on it, but I could do this even for myself. When Nathan lived 32 years, he fathered Eliza. And Nathan lived after he fathered Eliza 
67 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Nathan were 99 years and he died. And that's it. Does that seem too small? You know, this, this can be a tough reality for us to reckon with. That, that these generations, which are rapid and repetitious and terminal, the fact of that can make us feel small, insignificant, meaningless even, and yet we cannot hide from it. Because here it is, right in front of our face. Now what, what are we to do with it? You know, this doesn't have to be a bleak text, necessarily. There is good use in all of the scripture. So, so what sort of impact do we want this to really have upon us that's fitting to it? We could talk about the hope of the resurrection here. It's a natural thing to think about, isn't it? That that Jesus has come to conquer not just sin, but also death. That the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So all those who are in Jesus are raised to everlasting life with him. It's not just that Jesus is going to take away the terminal part. That there will be no end. That there will be a life forever in the new heavens and new earth. That's true. But that he's going to make life restored with all of its abundance and richness in it. That all of his people would, would carry on before the presence of God in their happy lives. Collecting bugs and making maps and, and baking pies and, and dancing the Macarena. And maybe the moonwalk and some other things. This would all be part of their good and faithful work of of these servants who have been invited to enter into the joy of their master forever. So it would be fitting for us to talk about resurrection here. We know all roads in the Bible lead to Jesus, including even these earliest days of Genesis. But even though we could do that, there is another road a more immediate road, that I think this text might lead us down. And it's still hopeful, but in a different way. It's interesting that the only thing attached to each of these generations, other than the names of the person and the fact that they had children, the only thing that's really mentioned about them is, did you notice? Numbers. That's the only thing attached to them. The numbers of their years. It even puts emphasis on the numbers so much that it does some math. Here was the number of years of life before their kid, the number of years after they had that first kid, and the total of those years before and after were X number of years. Now, why does the writer here care so much about the listener hearing these numbers? The writer of this ultimately is God. The Holy Spirit's carrying him along. But the writer of this is Moses. Moses is the author of Genesis. And Moses wrote just one psalm that's included in the book of Psalms. And in that psalm, he talks again about these numbers of years. It's in Psalm 90, if you want to turn there. I won't read it all, but it opens like this. 
Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. He's going to go on from there, but you can hear in this opener the context of this sounds a lot like Genesis. We not only have mention of of generations, but of, of the founding of the mountains, the returning back to dust, the coming of the flood. This seems to be thinking in Genesis terms. And as he unpacks this psalm a little further, he's going to go on to talk about God in both God's wrath and God's love, God's anger and God's favor. But in this psalm, we hear probably the most famous line. You'll recognize it when I read it. It's verse 12 of Psalm 90, it says this, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Heard that before? Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. By numbering our days, this doesn't mean after the fact only, nor does it mean that we're, just, we're pulling out a calendar and a calculator to count all of our days, you know. I couldn't do that even if I wanted to for myself. I'm not God. I don't know the future. I have no idea what even tomorrow is going to bring. But by numbering our days, it means that we reckon with the reality that our days are numbered already. Your days are already numbered. In that sense, you are just the same as Adam, as Seth, as Enosh, as Kenan, and as all the rest. All of his days were X number of years, and he died. That numbering of days is not something that just comes naturally to us. Some people think that's just something you have to automatically accept as you age, and that's not the case. In this psalm, it says, teach us to number our days. Teach us. That is, this numbering is a skill that we need to learn, that we want God to mature that in us. And the reason why we want that is because of the outcome. Teach us to number our days, not to make us morbid or mopey or to think life is meaningless and is just going to end someday. It's to make us wise. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Don't you want that? Don't you want a heart of wisdom? A God-given wisdom will set you free. Whether it's because of, because of our sin or just some limits in our ability to have perspective, maybe both of those things combined, all of us, all of us have a tendency to overinflate the generation that we are in, 
to overinflate the importance of where we live now. The events that are happening now are to us the most important things in all of history because these are the things that most directly impact me. In some ways, that's a natural way to think, but that perspective will eventually make us foolish and fearful. You know, it just takes one flip on of the news to feel that. You know, we hear the talk on the news about uh, the possibility, maybe, of World War III, perhaps. The, the shifting of the global economy, the, the gravity of the upcoming election. There's tons of things always, always being discussed. And, and, and that can, if we listen to it and take it in, build a rising sense of dread and anxiety in us. We don't want that. It's not a God-given thing. Now, a wise heart doesn't just hear those things and and sit on our hands, wait for the countdown of of our days to end. Who can't wait till my numbered days are up? The wise heart then rises up each day to meet the day, knowing that that day is numbered by God. That every day in all generations are numbered by God to say in the morning, Lord, today is a day that you have numbered. And nothing I do will add one more day. And nothing I do will subtract one day that you've given. There's a sort of humility that comes with really believing that. Acknowledging that each of your days are numbered will make you small. But smallness before God is a good thing. It helps us to see his bigness. And it will bring you to deeper trust in God so that you will walk with God all your days. Pray with me. Lord, we want these things to be true of us. Teach us to number our days, to know our end and how fleeting we are, that we would gain a heart of wisdom from you. You are a God whose years endure throughout all generations, and and even when the foundations of the earth perish, you will remain. Help us to trust you in each day, in each year, in each generation, that your name would be honored above all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.